Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. It is great to be with you. And as I said at the end of the uh, last show, I'm still joined by Josiah from the Pondering Politics YouTube channel. Thank you for being here, Josiah. It's great to be with you, Lucas. Thanks for the invitation and the platform. Absolutely. We have a fantastic show ahead of us. So let's dive in. A clip of uh, Republican Senator Ted Cruz from during the 2016 presidential uh, GOP primary era, where he was running against Trump in that primary, has resurfaced. It's going viral once again. And it highlights, it emphasizes what makes Ted Cruz such a dishonest individual in American politics. And what's fascinating is most of the time when I'm showing you a clip that's enraging, it's because what they're saying is dishonest. In the clip I'm going to show you, this is again from the 2016 uh, primary race, he was correct. He was accurately assessing Trump as a person, his dishonesty, all of that. And now when you juxtapose that with the words that come out of Ted Cruz's mouth about Trump now and the actions he takes in supporting Trump's agenda and his rhetoric and all of that now, we are reminded, as I'm sure you've been aware of for a long time, the type of person that Ted Cruz is. But here's this uh, from the 2016 Republican primary where Ted Cruz is accurately analyzing Trump. I don't think this country's ever seen. Donald Trump is such a narcissist that Barack Obama looks at him and goes, dude, what's your problem? Everything in Donald's world is about Donald. And he combines being a pathological liar. And I say pathological because I actually think Donald, if you hooked him up to a lie detector test, he could say one thing in the morning, one thing at noon, and one thing in the evening, all contradictory, and he'd pass the lie detector test each time. Whatever lie he's telling, at that minute, he believes it. But the man is utterly amoral. Let me finish this, please. The man is utterly amoral. Morality does not exist for him. It's why he went after Heidi directly and smeared my wife, attacked her. Apparently, she's not pretty enough for Donald Trump. I may be biased, but I think if he's making that allegation, he's also legally blind. But Donald is a bully. You know, we just visited with fifth graders. Every one of us knew bullies in elementary school. Bullies don't come from strength. Bullies come from weakness. Bullies come from a deep yawning cavern of insecurity. There is a reason Donald builds giant buildings and puts his name on them everywhere he goes. And I will say, there are millions of people in this country who are angry. They're angry at Washington. They're angry at politicians who've lied to them. I understand that anger. I share that anger. And Donald is cynically exploiting that anger. And he is lying to his supporters. Donald will betray his supporters on every issue. If you care about immigration, Donald is laughing at you. And he's telling the money deletes. He doesn't believe what he's saying. He's not going to build a wall. That's what he told the New York Times. He will betray you on every issue. Now, when I say that he was accurately assessing Trump, I don't mean he was delivering in a way that wasn't super cringy because he does do this thing like, I am really passionate about what I'm saying. I promise I'm a real person who cares about things like a, you know, person. Um, but setting that aside, the narcissist part of it, him being immoral, it all being about Trump, it's all true. Now, do we hear that from Ted Cruz these days? No, he's a big Trump bootlicker and he was a part of trying to... Uh, uh, stand in the way of the certification of the 2020 election based on lies that Trump told. Why? Because he had real evidence to the claims he was making? No, because his fifis were hurt. He couldn't imagine losing to Sleepy Joe, but he did. Yeah. So first things first, um, I want to thank you for subjecting me to that two minute and 20 second clip. I felt <laughs> I felt every second of it, man. And then you said that this this show was going to be fun. We had so many things to get into and you introduce a Ted Cruz clip. So just, <laughs> I, I needed I needed to process it for a minute. But in terms of the substance of what he said, 
first, it is appropriate to call out Ted Cruz's delivery because he is so he radiates insincerity. Like, obviously, there's a cynicism, I think, to to a lot of politicians, if not most, if not all. I think that there's some cynical element there. I feel like you have to in order to be a successful career politician for a matter of decades. But Cruz, just like, there's no there's no veil. You know, he just he <laughs> sounds so fake. At one point, he's defending his wife, rightly so, uh, against the character attacks made against uh, her by President Trump, then Donald Trump. And then later on in the same clip, he kind of like moves in front of her when he's like, <laughs> he's just like, get out of All my right, way. You're done. <laughs> but but yeah, the, the, at the end of the day, he did correctly diagnose Donald Trump as a malignant narcissist. And not only did he just mention it in passing. He just gave a two minute and 20 second speech about it. And it probably went on even even at some point. The reporters were like, "Okay, so we have some other thing. No, no, no. Let me finish. You know, and he wants to go on about Mm. Trump's character faults and then to do the 180. And of course, (laughs) the iconic example of the low character person, uh, the two faced nature of Ted Cruz is highlighted no better than comparing that and Ted Cruz's response. He saw it a little bit there, but there's other clips of him as well to Trump with that tweet alluding to his wife, trying to say that she was ugly um, by that tweet with Melania and all that. And Ted Cruz was like, you don't come after my wife, which as you said, that's correct. You shouldn't do that. You can come after me, but you don't come after my wife. Again, good energy. And then not too long after there's that photo of him phone banking for trump (laughs) well that that, that's the thing luke that's the thing he didn't actually follow through with the sentence he's like you don't come after my wife or else i will have to vote for and support you and phone bank for you don't you do it don't make me support you by insulting my wife publicly to the nation (laughs) and we talked about during the last show desantis who is obviously afraid of just calling out trump aggressively because he's afraid of the trump base and that's what it is here where instead of choosing principles and dignity and any sort of integrity, a lot of these individuals fell in line. Even people who had their wife um, attacked like Ted Cruz did. And he obviously was personally attacked constantly, but he still fell in line. And now he's in private. He probably hates the fact that he has to be uh, a little puppy for Trump and he has to lick the boots of Trump constantly. But you allowed that to happen. You chose because it was politically advantageous in the moment to support Trump. And now y'all just can't get rid of him. And that's on you. 100%. Now, my fear is, didn't you say there are more clips to this effect? So (laughs) I'm going to subject you to more, but this is now Lindsey Graham, who (laughs) I guess gives Ted Cruz a run for his money for um, flip-flopping on the issue of Trump. And this is during also, I'm pretty sure, yeah, t- uh, Lindsey Graham was a presidential candidate as well during the same primary. And he had some some tough words for Donald Trump that he definitely has not uh, stuck by. ...to hearing what Donald Trump says. I disgusted. Well, I'm going to talk to the Trump supporters for a minute. I don't know who you are, and I don't know why you like this guy. I think what you like about him, he appears to be strong when the rest of us are weak. He's a very successful businessman. He's going to make everything great. He's going to take all the problems of the world and put them in a box and make your life better. That's what he's selling. Here's what you're buying. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. He doesn't represent my party. He doesn't represent the values that the men and women who wear the uniform are fighting for. I've been in the Air Force for 33 years. I retired this June. He's the ISIL man of the year, by the way. Just got back from Morocco a week ago this Monday. I know. We interviewed you live from there. You were with mm-hmm. Senator John McCain, and you were going to, into Iraq to get a status report. What what were they saying there about... Again, accurate statements being made. And now, you want to get queued up this next clip of Lindsey Graham um, <laughs> during Sean Hannity recently. He's a little different on the subject of Trump. Now, he's nearly crying fundraising for the man two (laughs) back-to-back grams okay (laughs) i'm punishing you (laughs) hi donaldjtrump.com go tonight give the president some money to fight this bullshit this is going to destroy america we're going to fight back at the ballot box we're not going to give in how does this end sean trump wins in court 
and he wins the election. That's how this wins. Ends. Mm. Mm. So brave and courageous. Same guy. Okay, we just showed you the same guy. And is it because Trump changed a lot? Is it because he's just become this great man with great policy positions? No. And what he was responding to there with the uh, banning travel from predominantly Muslim countries, that's something he recently was revoicing support for. And Lindsey Graham, are we going to hear the analysis they did in the past? No, because it's all about when they criticize Trump for being a narcissist, when they criticize him for just being focused on himself, they are doing the same thing by supporting Trump because they think, I don't know, this is going to keep me relevant. This is going to keep me supported in the GOP instead of taking the path of high character. Yeah, again, just dealing with the trauma of getting first Ted Cruz and then two back-to-back Lindsey Grahams, <laughs> trying to parse through that and also provide meaningful political analysis is difficult. Um, I will say to the Democrats, uh, in favor of the Democrats, I'll give them kudos here, um, they, <laughs> they routinely... Again, MSNBC, the Democrats on Twitter, they collate these clips the, and juxtapose them back to back because they're, number one, hilarious. These people are so pathetic. Lindsey Graham is so profoundly pathetic. Ted Cruz might be the most pathetic. You know, you, you look at other Republicans, people like Mitch McConnell, who goes out of his way simply to just not engage with Trump or not to respond to Trump because Mitch McConnell, for all his nefariousness, you know, he sees Trump as basically he saw him as a tool or somebody he could like he could be a barnacle clinging to Trump to Trump along the way and then just eject whenever. But but Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, they have put themselves in a position where, unlike Mitch McConnell, they have to be part of the cult of personality. That last clip, I had forgotten all about it because Lindsey Graham has tears in his eyes when he's Donald J. Trump. <laughs> and like you, I've it was I, I I don't even know how to respond to that, and I don't know if it's sincere because that's the thing. Unlike Ted Cruz, that looked like genuine emotion from Lindsey Graham. So the clips you provided here, I think, like a weird contrast. I think what it is just like is that. He's hearing how <laughs> just against his own principles, what's coming out of his mouth is he's like, I hate myself for this. That's what the authentic emotion is that you're picking up on. It, it, he could be that he stubbed his toe, something like that. somebody <laughs> told him. Somebody said, imagine what your dearly departed friend, John McCain, would think of you right now. Maybe that <sighs> was the thing that, you know, and say what. People have their legitimate grievances with Senator McCain, but whether you like him or not, whether you agree with him or not, he was a man of principle in the sense that there was relative consistency there. Mm. He was a statesman in the Republican Party. Again, would have never voted for him. You know, he I don't think he would have been a great president, but you want to talk about a stark contrast between that aspect of the GOP and what it's now become. This is it's just profoundly pathetic and what i say a lot of times with clips like this i think this should be a lesson for us all okay when we see ted cruz flip-flopping and being humiliated for it lindsey graham um i've talked about in the past mike pence who for his own political gain while he did the correct thing on january 6th and we've given him a lot of credit for that um in the build-up to that all those years he violated his principle time and time again as a very religious guy to back Trump and to not speak out against him and to be his vice president. And for all of these individuals who do that, who kiss up to Trump, uh, Trump lick his boots and um, stand by him for political purposes, they violate their own principles to do so because they think it will benefit them in the short term. They end up being humiliated because of course they will be. And so for us, let this be a lesson. Even if the next step, it seems like Okay, maybe if I'm just a little bit dishonest, I violate my principle here and there, that'll help me the most because it'll bring more money in or it'll bring more, in their case, it'll be something that will uh, benefit them politically. This should remind us that a life of high character, choosing the path of honesty, it will lead you away from having to deal with that. If you're just analyzing it from that perspective, I've said before, the path of dishonesty inevitably leads Josiah to humiliation 
and it inevitably leads to me having to watch these clips, which again was In a pain. torturous experience. But honestly, this next mm. story that I have for you, um, it's there's some awkwardness there too. And the clips that I've got to share um, deals with Marjorie Taylor Greene. So please brace yourself. Give it uh, to us. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Marjorie Trader Green. Okay, mm. she is the MAGA darling. She is basically the de facto Speaker of the House. At least there's some credible reports to suggest as much because Kevin McCarthy desperately needs her support, her star power. She's a darling of Donald Trump. You know, there were some reports to suggest that he might consider her as a vice presidential candidate. Just imagine. I know, I know. It's too much. It's too much. Too much trauma. Move on from that. Yeah. It hurts. <laughs> yes. They, she had an interaction um, in defense of George Santos, the pathologically lying Republican, I repeat myself, uh, who has been indicted under like 13 counts of a federal crime. He's being investigated by Brazil. 80% of his constituents want him to resign. Basically, what happened was Democrats tried to basically call the Republicans bluff, get them on record. Okay. Some of you have called them to resign. You say you're the party of principle and Jesus and the family values. Let's test it. Here's George Santos. Um, why don't we expel him? He's again, indicted for 13 federal crimes. He has pled guilty to stealing. I think it was um, a checks in Brazil. Uh, this is a controversial man. Let's expel him from the house of representatives. And every single Republican voted to protect him including Marjorie Taylor Greene. So what happened was outside of the House of Representatives, he's giving a press conference and one of our favorite Democratic congressmen, Jamal Bowman, he's leaving the House of Representatives and he has some friendly advice to Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Republicans. So I'd like to play this clip. Party's hanging by a thread. The party is hanging. The party's hanging by a thread. You gotta save the party. Listen, no more QAnon, no more MAGA, no more debt ceiling nonsense. Come on now, save the party. Save America. Save the children. Do something about guns. Come on, invest in education. The border is. The border is what Trump left in. What are we talking about? What kids? We're accepting them. We love them. We love the migrant children. What do you lost them? You can't find them. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Yeah, migrant children. No, no, we don't know the news. I don't know. That's Fox News. That's Fox News. Listen, I need you to save the party. So, you know, you mentioned in our last story that you were experiencing some visceral pain watching clips of Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham. I've mentioned to people that it's interesting how you can kind of build up enough mental scar tissue where uh, most of covering for me doing this job, American politics, it's fine. I, don't, I feel the anger in moments, but I'm able to set that aside and move on with my life once I'm done. And uh, watching certain clips don't make me go bonkers. I'm getting that way, uh, the opposite way. It's not working anymore with Marjorie Green, and I, oh gosh, really, really don't enjoy watching clips of her. Um, but Jamal Bowman's exactly right. The way, because what we'll get to in a clip later, I know, is uh, Marjorie Green trying to make a point about, oh, Jamal Bowman, we might get to this, but one of the things she said in response to that clip was, he was saying, save my party, I want to save America, don't be concerned with the party. No, 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 the point is, Marjorie, Trader Green. The point is, the way we save the country is to get your ideology out of the GOP. We save, the, I guess if you want to use that term, the GOP, and that's how we save the country, by getting this radical, extreme, QAnon, Marjorie, MAGA ideology out of it. That's how we save the country, to get that out of the GOP. And so, we don't need to worry right now about trying to save the other party, because it's not even anywhere close to what's going on with the Republican Party. And uh, Jamal Bowman was exactly right in, in pointing that out to her face. Yeah, it, it's so funny because, I mean, obviously, I want everybody to note um, the the nature of the exchange, right? Because they were both smiling. They were both laughing. They clearly don't like each other. There's, I, I have no doubt that there is genuine contempt there, understandably so in terms of Jamal Bowman's potential contempt for her. And I'm certainly sure, sir, 
on her end, she feels likewise. But that was a relatively civil exchange when you consider uh, other uncivil exchanges that have occurred between Republicans and Democrats over the years. But setting that aside, the fact of the matter is that Marjorie Trader Green is constantly obsessed with issues of irrelevance. So this is in the same time frame. While she's defending, this is when she's defending George Santos from expulsion and justifying um, her decision to do so, trying to hype him up in a post, uh, you know, hearing press conference. This is also the same time frame in which she introduced articles of impeachment for the sixth time, her sixth. Yeah against President Biden in two and a half years. By the way, when people say, well, you know, Democrats tried to impeach Trump twice, the level of impeachment has skyrocketed since Republicans or since President Biden has taken over because as, as usual, Republicans escalate to a far greater degree. But yeah, note note the, the relative civility and the affability between the two, which leads us to our second clip, okay? This is Marjorie Taylor Greene addressing that exchange that we just saw between Representative Bowman and herself. Note the difference. What what concerns me about Jamal Bowman is he has a history of aggression, um, not just towards others, but towards me in particular, and I'm very concerned about it. But I will tell you what's on video is Jamal Bowman shouting at the top of his lungs cursing, calling me a horrible, calling me a white supremacist, which I take great offense to. That is like calling a person of color the N-word, which should never happen. Calling me a white supremacist is equal to that, and that is wrong. I feel threatened by him. Um, he not only led a mob, mob there, but his boisterous lies. And I'll tell you another thing he said outside there. He was saying, save your party. I kept telling him, no, save the country. It's not about political parties. We shouldn't care about political I'm, I'm tempted just to torture you just to leave her up here like this, but I'm not. <laughs> she says, uh, and I know I get it. I get the whole reason she says stuff like that is to get a rise out of people, but it's working, okay? It's working. That calling someone a white supremacist, calling her in particular white supremacist, is the same as calling someone the N-word. Number one, I mentioned in a, la a past segment about Marjorie Greene, a term that I've coined called celebratory ignorance, one celebrating their own ignorance. It's a party for their own lack of knowledge. And the less they know, the more they feel able to speak on a particular subject. And there she's broadcasting the fact that she doesn't get the difference or she gets it, but she's choosing to pretend like she doesn't get the difference between an ideology and, uh, and an identity because you are calling somebody the N-word, which is not Marjorie Green there, but I'm saying um, that word is associating with is um, trying to reference the identity of someone and then insulting them based on that in the most vile terms. Saying that someone's a white supremacist is saying they buy into a particular ideology that has nothing. You can change that. That has nothing to do with your identity. Um, and so obviously it's not logical, but the point is to get a lot of her followers to go, oh yeah. Um, and I know we have another uh, another clip where Jamal Bowen responds and points this out where it's all the dog whistles. Oh, the black man, he threatened me. Oh, I felt so threatened by him. He was shouting at the top of his lungs. As you said, Josiah, really? We just watched the clip, Marjorie. You were, <laughs> I would say, far more aggressive than Jamal Bowman was. <laughs> She was oh. certainly engaging with him on the same level. Yeah, they were they were both raising their voice, but it was it was it was like um, you know there weren't microphones around them, right? Like they weren't speaking with the lapel mic or anything like this. Yeah. They were outside. They were in front of and it was a playful, crowd. right? There was a playfulness. You simply can't cite a decibel level and say that that's you know inherent aggression, right? And she was matching him for energy, and actually looked like I think to a cursory observer that they both. In a, you know, enjoyed the exchange almost perhaps in like a combative sparring way. One of the things I like a lot about Congressman Bowman is he's a very effective troll to Republicans when he wants to be. <laughs> he knows how to get a rise out of them. He can confront them with the facts. We've seen it, you know, in the news for the past several months. Um, so for her to then characterize it, we saw we saw how she handled it in person. And then for her to characterize it a radically different way 
you know, however long later to just cynically exploit it for political sympathy. It's disgusting. And then on top of that, her conflation of the, the term white supremacist with the N-word. Number one, she's trying to she's trying to um, neuter the significance of the N-word in terms of its history of oppression, what it what it means to people, how it hurts people. She's trying to essentially say, ah, it's not that bad. But also the term white supremacist is that bad. But like you said, when people, when racists use the word, the N-word, they are using it to ascribe a characteristic to a person's immutable traits, the color of their skin, right? Which you can't change, right? It's a derogatory term saying, you know, this is who you are. You can't change this. And this is the hurtful label we, uh, we uh, ascribe to you. Whereas if you're a white supremacist, now I'm not a psychiatrist, but perhaps you could just like not be one. What if, what if you chose simply to what? not espouse? Yeah, I know. I hear you. And maybe it'll take effort, you know, because white supremacy is, it's pervasive. It's sinister. It's taught. It's learned. It's regurgitated among mm. the various systems in society, oftentimes imperceptibly, you know, you, you don't even notice it until eventually it's like, oh, where did that come from? And it's just been building for years. I'm not saying there's not effort involved. But white supremacists can cease to be white supremacists. So the, the conflation of the two is really disgusting. But you did tee up um, uh, Representative Bowman's response to Congresswoman Green. And so I'd like to play that because this clip beautifully juxtaposes her words with his in real time. And so you see the contrast. So we'll take a look. Majority Taylor Green in her press conference this morning said something incredibly dangerous and incredibly reckless about me. I think there's a lot of concern about Jamal Bowman. So, and, and I am concerned about it. I feel threatened by him. This country has a history of characterizing black men who are outspoken, who stand their ground and who push back as being threatening or intimidating. Yelling, shouting, raising his voice. He has aggressive uh, his physical mannerisms are aggressive. I never invaded her personal space and gregarious the entire time. How is that intimidating? So I, I am very concerned about Jamal Bowman, and he's someone that people should watch. But she knows what she's doing when she does that. And unfortunately, white supremacists historically, this is what they do. They try to dehumanize black people, black skin, and the black humanity so that they can be, you know, more likely to be targeted for harm. So she's not even using a dog whistle. She's using a bullhorn to put a target on my back to the people that she refers to as MAGA people out there who might want to cause harm. This is one of the reasons why Emmett Till was killed. And throughout history, black men have continued to be characterized as aggressive because one, because of our skin color, but two, because we happen to be outspoken and passionate about certain issues. So you think what you said was racist? So I, I am very concerned about Jamal Bowman. The fact that someone such as Jamal Bowman, who actually has an interest in improving the lives of his constituents and trying to make America better and actually putting forward policy solutions to the problems facing people, that he is not just uh, technically in the same position as she is, but actually, in effect, less powerful than she is because of her sway within the Republican Party and sway with Kevin McCarthy is sickening. That Someone like Marjorie Green, who has no interest in improving the lives of her constituents. If she did, she would talk about real problems and not the fake ones that she makes up. Um, and she would spend her time actually attempting to help people instead of just demonizing people. But she actually has more power within Congress than Jamal Bowman does with her authority, not her voting power, but her authority because of how she demands kind of the MAGA part of the party. And that's disturbing. And that's why if we want to save America, step one get the MAGA ideology out of the GOP. Yeah, and if that's not possible, uh, get the GOP out of positions of power. It's one of the yes. two. And so that was where the irony is, is Congressman Bowman was almost offering her an olive branch when he was like, save your party before <laughs> the country has to save itself from your party, right? Mm. It, it's a step-by-step -step process. And the last thing I'll say on that subject is between your analysis and also what he himself said, there's really not much more to say other than I love the phrase that she's not using a dog whistle. She's using a bullhorn. Yeah. And that was just a beautiful turn of phrase. Uh, I will say, Luke, that unfortunately we have to deal with another MAGA crazy. Okay. Um, oh, no. It's not Marjorie Trader Green. It is Representative Clay Higgins. So another member of the MAGA contingent in the House of Representatives. 
Um, this is one of the representatives from Louisiana. Uh, he is um, he's a colorful character. Uh, he's not quite as high profile as, again, the Lauren Boeberts, the Marjorie Taylor Greenses, the Matt Gateses. But he's like on the next rung down, and I would argue no less crazy. Okay. So I'd like to play a clip for you, and you can see it firsthand. Get off me! Get off me! This is assault! Get off me! This is assault! You're a U.S. congressman touching a person. You can't get him off the street. Get off him! Let him know! Let him You calm down! You need to calm down! Sometimes I wonder if they ever kind of try to pull themselves out into a third person perspective and watch themselves and think, wait, how do I look acting the way that I do? It's, it's almost as if they are playing a character of themselves. They are trying to be a caricature of what this radical, just unhinged type individual would be. Well, it's funny you say that because for the first thing I'll say is I, I just I, we saw that clip. There are other clips circulating. The protester in question was heckling Republicans, as is right to do, uh, outside the House of Representatives, asking uh, Republican Congress people questions, sharp, pertinent questions, but all the same. Uh, and we've seen Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene, not to name drop her, but she used to she famously heckled you know, people before and during her con congressional a survivor career. survivor of a mass shooting. Yeah, David Hogg, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You know, so again, but that goes to the asymmetry of expectation. It's okay for Republicans to not only heckle and protest and and be obnoxious, but it's actually okay for them to do it even when the, the target is the survivor of a mass shooting that mm. only probably occurred because of Republican, you know, disinterest in legislating against these things, but I digress. But anyway, not only that, but Republicans have absolutely no tolerance when the shoe's on the other foot and they're being heckled. So this man asked, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene a question, or excuse me, Lauren Boebert a question about uh, her divorce. And then Clay Higgins just tried to bull rush him. I don't even know when he was going to stop. He just kept moving him. Like, I feel like they're they're on their like they're crossing the <laughs> Mississippi at this point. He's just like sheep dogging him towards California. It was absolute madness. <laughs> absolutely. Can I show you this this tweet? Uh, yeah. I mean, like this. This is the other thing too. So you you might think to yourself, well, maybe Clay Higgins, you know, that was that was in bad form, but you know, maybe he's consistent on this. Maybe he's a consistent MAGA <laughs> Republican. But it turns out he's not. If you look at this tweet, Representative Clay Higgins has this to say about protests: thousands of eighteen wheelers converging on D.C. to protest government oppression of rights and freedoms is about as American as American can get. So, Luke, maybe I'm missing something. It seems to me that perhaps Mr. Higgins has um, different views on protest depending on who's doing the protesting. Can you imagine? I think we've now had three stories or maybe four uh, just in this one show that are very prominent and uh, clear examples of members of the GOP, but more specifically the MAGA GOP, openly, proudly violating their own principles and doing so just as, like I said, proudly and blatantly as you possibly could. If we heard in situations like that, COVID protests, oh, we love protests so much. We love, sometimes you got to disrupt. And then, and that's how they sometimes defend January 6th, even though it wasn't a peaceful protest. Um, and then here, someone's heckling Lauren Bober and he's going to use his body to intervene. Um, but as you've said before, even in this show, that's kind of the GOP superpower or the MAGA. I do want to specify that more often and more consistently. There are Republicans still that we talk about who aren't the same as, as MAGA, and that's, that's clear to say. Um, and especially in the MAGA GOP, it's the superpower because you can, as long as the voters don't care, which they don't, with the lack of consistency when it comes to these principles, because then there's no way to catch them on anything. They can just hop from one lily pad logical argument to another. No, a hundred percent. And I was going to say, but it's really not even worth it. I was just 
going to point out um, that Clay Higgins <laughs> during um, it was after uh, the 2021 um, it was inauguration day when President Biden was inaugurated. Uh, Clay Higgins during January 6 voted against certifying uh, President Biden's victory. And so uh, <laughs> a person in Alaska called him a traitor. And Clay Higgins, who is obviously very well balanced, no issues whatsoever, uh, challenged him to a fight. He said, you pick a ring, let's fight oh to God. a person who called him a traitor. So I'm not Amen. sure what, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure what more there is to say other than that this is an example of the normalization of violence and radicalism in both rhetoric and action in the MAGA wing of the GOP. Next thing I want to talk about, Carrie Lake, you, you guys might not know this. I kind of stumbled across this information, but kind of knew it was happening a little bit. Apparently, uh, she's still fighting her election results and she... She's going to become governor still, guys. She is going to be rightfully installed governor of Arizona. And one of the parts of her original lawsuit has um, continued to be litigated. We talked about how um, her election challenge lawsuit went up to the Arizona Supreme Court. And then almost everything has been thrown out, except for this one piece. They gave her one last shot to see if she could bring forward any evidence on the signature verification part of her lawsuit. She's, of course, alleging that... There was no certification, uh, there was no verification, I should say, going on with the signatures, and that's why there was all this fraud and hundreds of thousands of ballots and all of this. Well, she had a star witness, and the trial's going on as we speak, um, or wrapped up for the week recently, and she had a star witness on day one or two, I think it was, who was supposed to just absolutely expose what was going on here, and uh, the Arizona Republic has a really good article on this, you want to pull that back up? Josiah, uh, titled here, scroll back up to the title a few hours in and Carrie Lake's trial is already over or it should be. And then the article writes, um, just really nicely laid out here. Carrie Lake on Wednesday opened her second trial challenging the 2022 election with a complete and total fizzle. Her attorney, Carlson, told the judge he'd be presenting evidence that Maricopa County didn't verify the voter signatures on hundreds of thousands of early ballots, instead hiring signature reviewers who just went through the motions while the county looked on. Quote, this isn't a question of not doing it well enough, he said. They're simply not doing signature verification. Okay, so then you this is you make the claim. This is the time you bring forward the evidence. Lake Star Witness was great for the defense. The article continues. Jacqueline uh, Onikite, I'll say Onikite, who worked as a level one reviewer, spent more than an hour explaining the links to which county went uh, to verify signatures. The week-long training of workers, the three levels of signature review, the admonition of uh, to get it right, quote, they, meaning supervisors, told us, you need to be very cautious. You need to pay attention to what you're doing. And remember that whatever you reject or approve, you can be called in to testify. She testified. As a witness for the defense, Onagite was dynamite. But of course, she was supposed to be a witness for Carrie Lake's side. Uh, so Josiah, I know this is not something, just because I'm almost like a car wreck, you just can't stop even though you don't want to look, you look, I've been keeping up with all the challenges from Carrie Lake because it's so absurd. And now she has this last chance. I don't know why the Supreme Court of Arizona even went through all, all of this and is allowing her to continue litigating this, maybe just to make sure, even though it won't convince them, that MAGA sees, look, she's having her day in court over and over and over. And this is her last moment. Her star witness says, yeah, no, we definitely verified signatures. I don't even know what to say. That might be, that is one of the most legitimately funny political news stories. Like you can even <laughs> tell that the writers themselves, this is supposed to be, I assume, you know, just a, probably a standard local, um, you know, uh, publication. And even they can't help but find it hilarious mm. because it's like, what legal mastermind did you, did they not do any witness prep? You're not supposed to falsify witness testimony when you call a witness, but you should probably know what the witness that you call <laughs> is going to say. And if you're defending Carrie Lake, or if you're making the case on behalf of Carrie Lake, you might want what the witness has to say to support Carrie Lake's case. And if that witness doesn't, then you might not want to call him to the stand. So I'm just imagining to fly on the wall in a courtroom 
you know, the witness starts to talk and you can imagine Carrie Lake's own attorney's objection, your honor. And you can't object. It's your own witness. What are you talking about? But they're like, breaking the rules. They're not saying what I, what, what? Yeah, this shouldn't count. And then hey. like, I don't like, what are you doing? And, and I, to, it would be one of those things where I don't know if there's any footage because some court cases, as you well know, they are, they are videotaped. They're, they're documented. But wouldn't it be hilarious if it was almost like an office skit, you know, like that that zoom in on everybody in the room, like the bailiff, the judge, where they're just like, what? I, I don't know what to make of this. It's, it's hard to even offer substantive commentary about this because what a joke. What a joke and this entire thing is. Every time, especially when it's this hilarious, I think, what what is being said on the other side to this? And I saw that Carrie Lake, of course, was saying, see, we're proving it all. And one of the parts that was highlighted even in one of these uh, local bits of reporting was one guy who was verifying signatures way quicker than you actually could to get a sense of if the signatures are good. Um, and he was taken off of verification. Oh, great. So it looks like you'll have a really good process in place to make sure if someone's not doing the job correctly, they get taken off so that the signatures are indeed uh, verified. And that's what all of this that we've gone through with Trump's 2020 election lies, Carrie Lake's 2022 election lies, all of it, it has shown me that our election system is actually more secure than even I thought it was because they have done everything, investigation after investigation, audit after audit, recount after recount. The cyber ninjas did their little thing. And uh, we've seen groups do recounts or audits of some kind and realize that Biden won in that state more than they previously thought sometimes. And all of these court cases, I would have thought just because of the sheer mass of people that vote in every election, you would be able to find some examples of some pretty fishy stuff, even if it doesn't mean there was a conspiracy. I thought maybe you could find something and they can find nothing. And it's actually making me feel good. All right, we got some pretty good election systems. I'm just, I'm just, again, it's, it's so hard to, obviously this is politically relevant. Obviously this is topical because Carrie Lake, whether we like it or not, she is a prominent member of the Republican Party, perhaps not, you know, in terms of official power, because, you know, she assures us she's the governor of Arizona. The rest of Arizona hasn't like caught on yet. They're, they're not aware of that fact. Um, but in terms of her prominence, in terms of, again, her cultural star power, um, she's very popular within the right wing movement, which is an indictment in and of itself. But, you know, it's so, it's so hard to take this seriously because, again, the way my mind works, as much of like a, a pop culture geek as I am, I'm just imagining the next great HBO Max Veep style comedy. Totally. And I, I've got it. It's called The Lake House. And what it is, <laughs> it's it's Carrie Lake's defense team. It's just her <laughs> roster of attorneys. And it follows every each season is a new court case. And it's just like this slapstick comedy where it's like, you know, you know, the sound effects at the end, like curb your enthusiasm, where they're just like, oh, well, we called the wrong witness or we called Whoops. the correct witness, but we didn't do any research. And then the credits end with them just kind of cringing like this, like this. This is such an indictment of, again, that particular wing of the GOP. And the sad thing is I would be willing to bet if you looked on Twitter or on Rumble or on Trough Central or other places about this story, you would find thousands of actual people who are like, nailed it. Perry Mason, Matlock, whoever Carrie Lake hired for her legal team right here, the top legal geniuses of our day. And that's sad. Really sad. And going within what you're talking about with uh, the kind of Veep style show i can totally picture then she's about to give a speech and there's a scene and she's like i need something give me something you know like swearing at her mm -hmm. um at her legal team and i remember this one moment that was so embarrassing when she was pushing these lies where you picture like okay uh, here's something they just give her some story to tell and she told an actual story where it's supposed to be this horrible example of fraud and she goes we got one example um of a guy he may have been like an affidavit or something a guy who he showed up to the polling place after seven, which I think is it, whatever the time was that she gave was after the polling place had closed. Um, he showed up and they wouldn't let him vote. And so he, he started making a ruckus. They wouldn't let him vote. I mean, what's going on here in Arizona? And I'm like, wait, can you, can you go back? You're saying he showed up after not he got in line before. And then the time passed, he showed up after. Yeah. 
that's the example <laughs> what yeah i not, not but they wouldn't let him all. vote because he was republican Right. Not because he missed the deadline. <laughs> not that. That couldn't possibly be mm. it. In fact, what are deadlines if not, you know, hippie liberal devices mm. from the deep state to suppress Republican voter turnout or whatever? They're probably there's probably some conservative or some like MAGA cultist watching this right now and going, you know what? That actually kind of makes sense. What are deadlines? So we probably stop ought to it. stop giving them. Yeah, we probably <laughs> ought to stop feeding them. Um <laughs> You're brutal sometimes, Josiah. I, I I can't help it. I mean, you started it by bringing up this story. Like this is just that is. I I don't even know what to say to this, mm. but I will say the next story that we've got is uh, considerably less humorous. Mm. It's actually very tragic. Um, so I, I want to play. Well, before I do, let let me let me just say this bit of background. This is a story that concerns uh, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, she has been a powerhouse, a mainstay in the Democratic Party for decades. She's 89 years old. Uh, she has served on many prominent committees. And right now, she is a high-ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. More on that in a moment. She's also 89 years old. And, you know, age is not necessarily a reflection of competence or, or anything else. We've seen people, Bernie Sanders is a great example, somebody that if you look at clips of Bernie Sanders in 2023 versus in 1993, there seems to be a seamless continuity there. And then you have people in the Republican Party like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's relatively young, but there seems to be very little cognition going on there. So age is not necessarily a benchmark is what I'm getting at. But there have been credible reports for years not rumors, salacious rumors from Republicans, but credible reports from Democratic staff and staff of other Democratic senators that Dianne Feinstein, she is in a state of cognitive decline. So having said all that, she's been out of the Senate for months due to contracting shingles. And her absence has slow walked the progress that President Biden had in terms in, in multiple avenues, but in most particular, uh, appointing federal judiciary nominees. You know, that was one of the two major things that the Trump and McConnell team were able to do so successfully during the Trump years. Is they were able to cram the federal judiciary, every vacancy with a young radical conservative. That will have extraordinarily deleterious effects on people who go before them, you know, trying to defend their rights. Well, President Biden, thankfully, was on record to beat Biden, or excuse me, Trump and McConnell's uh, attempts to uh, to swing the judiciary right. They were they were actually putting out more progressive uh, young judges at a higher rate than Trump and McConnell were doing to conservatives. And Dianne Feinstein was a huge part of that. But her absence for the past few months has halted, seriously undermined that progress, leading many people to call for her to resign. So that brings us to this clip. She recovers from shingles. She's brought back into the Senate. And this exchange happens between her and a reporter. So I want to play this for you now, and then we'll dive into it. What have you heard? What have I heard about what? About your return. How have they felt about your no, return? No, I haven't been gone. Okay. Um, you should follow me. I haven't been gone. I've been working. You've been working from home is what you're saying? No, I've been here. Um, I've been voting. Please, either know or don't know. Mm. Well, take it away. What do you think? Yeah, so that's pretty severe to not know that you were um, gone when you were. Um, and when discussing the subject, I think as most people do, there's an overwhelming amount of just human empathy for someone. Um, I think a lot of us have had loved ones going through something like that. And so because real political impact is associated with this it has to be discussed and it matters and and a resignation um it, it seems to be i know just i will bring up one caveat to this but seems to be the correct decision there i think that decision should have been made a while ago like you talked about the reports have been around for quite a while now and i don't think she should have run for re-election years ago when she did um but because of both her legacy already and the um, impact of all of that being present and just the empathy we all have, it does feel oh, unfortunate 
to have to say, listen, this is, if you can't do your job properly because of health um, situations, then for the sake of the country and for the sake of the party, all of that, and for the sake of yourself so that you can um, be with a family and all of that, you need to go ahead and resign. Yeah, so um, I, I will get to the the frustrating part of Senate bureaucracy that complicates the virtue of whether or not Senator Feinstein should resign. But the next clip I do want to play is a response that she got from a colleague, uh, also from California, because Senator Feinstein represents California in the Senate. This is a Democratic uh, congressperson from uh, California named Ro Khanna, and this is what he's had to say since her return and since that uh, audio exchange that I just played for you. So we'll play this and get your thoughts. You and I were both on the Hill. I had a chance to speak with California Congressman Ro Khanna, who has been calling on the senator to resign. That was before all of this new information came out. Let's take a listen. That's a very sad situation. Anyone who saw her interaction the other day, I mean, she didn't know that she had been out for three months. Uh, I just think she's had a remarkable career. She's served honorably. It's time for people close to her to tell her to do the right thing and step aside. But she says she is still committed to the interest of California, serving the people of California. Shouldn't she be allowed that opportunity? She should if she could do the job. But I would just encourage people to view the interaction themselves. I mean, it was painful to watch uh, when Senator Durbin is saying that he has to monitor the medical health every day, when other people who are close to her in the Senate are saying it's painful to watch. Uh, I just hope people close to her can ask her to do the dignified thing, celebrate her service, and step aside. Yeah, so before uh, I jump into, again, that, that asterisk, which complicates this issue, what are your thoughts on the fact that her colleague uh, in the other chamber of Congress has publicly called on her to either resign or to pressure her or for her loved ones to uh, advise and even pressure her, if need be, to resign? Yeah, I think he's been one of the most if not the most outspoken on this as of uh recently and i'm sure he's getting some backlash for that again because of the uh empathy that goes along but i do think if you tap into that and understand that this being the way that her career ends with this moment of conflict and all of that and the political implications of it isn't actually the best for her either and um let what your legacy has been stand and then make the decision or those around her help her make um encourage her to make the decision to go ahead and and step down and resign like i said for the sake of the party lots of political implications of that with the, uh the confirming of of judges and then also for the sake of the country because of that and for like i said her but because of um everything i've just mentioned it definitely, the human element, element makes it where Rokana, like I said, is doing a pretty courageous or uh, possibly challenging action there of, of speaking out like he is. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Um, I, I'll just say, because again, I think you covered, um, I think you analyzed that very well. Um, I, I agree with you that it was you could make the argument that it was brave for him to do that because he's publicly breaking ranks in so many ways uh, to publicly call on her to do what she's done. Uh, you have to do it with empathy and compassion. Um, it also, there is some political sense behind it. Uh, she represents California. If she were to resign, she would be replaced by Democratic Governor uh, Newsom. Um, so if she were to resign, she would be replaced by a progressive, more than likely, certainly a Democrat. Um, so that sounds good. That's great. And California has a, a robust roster of progressive Democrats from which Governor Newsom can choose. Here's the little asterisk, though, because early on, I, too, was saying, oh, Senator Feinstein, you know, with all due respect, you, you need to resign. You need to put country above everything else at this point. You need to consider your legacy. You need to consider your own personal health. This probably can't be good for your health. It's a pretty stressful job, I imagine, trying to legislate at the federal level and certainly dealing with the Republican Party. Um, 
what I found out was, and this was courtesy of a CNN interview uh, between Jake Tapper and Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who is uh, one of my favorite Democratic senators. He is uh, just an intellectual powerhouse. See, he also sits on the Judiciary Committee. And like we talked about earlier, uh, Senator Feinstein's absence was slow walking the president's judicial nominees, undermining that momentum. And uh, people were understandably getting frustrated, myself included, and again, calling on her to resign. But Senator Whitehouse pointed out, here's a problem. During Feinstein's absence, she finally agreed to allow a temporary replacement to take her place on the Judiciary Committee while she was recovering from shingles. But in order for that temporary replacement to take her seat on the Judiciary Committee, they needed more than 60 votes, so a, so a, a supermajority, a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, which Democrats don't have, so you'd need eight to nine to 10 Republicans to back it, or you would need unanimous consent in which just no Republican objects. When they attempted to do that, Republicans objected. They couldn't get the votes from 10 Republicans to offer her seat up to a temporary replacement in good faith, uh, and they couldn't get unanimous consent. You had Republicans take to the floor and actually accuse Democrats of trying to push Feinstein out the door despite her service. It was obviously a bad faith, insincere attempt on their part to just deny Democrats the additional seat they needed to resume the momentum of getting President Biden's judicial nominees out the door. So Senator Sheldon Whitehouse points out, if that was on a temporary basis, the same thing applies to a permanent replacement. If Senator Feinstein were removed from the committee, if she were temporarily out due to sickness, or if she left the Senate, if she resigned from the Senate, it would be the same thing. Her vacancy would have to be filled by either unanimous consent, or they would need to get 10 Republicans approximately to back a replacement. Maybe that would happen in the event she chooses to resign. Maybe there would be 10 sitting Republican senators to find enough conscience to say, you know what, she's doing the right thing for herself. Democrats still have a majority. They are owed the seat. Uh, we need to back a, a vacancy. But I think Senator Whitehouse is pretty reasonably skeptical that that would happen. So to me, this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Luke, in my opinion, it's, and it's easy to, to look back and play armchair quarterback. She should not have run for re-election in the first place. But now that she has and now that she won, we are in a difficult position in large part because of GOP bad faith. Absolutely. Moving on. Uh, Donald Trump seems to be also very close to getting charged out of the Georgia investigation into his attempts to pressure election officials and all these different wild things to overturn uh, the 2020 election results in the state of Georgia, a part of his attempt to do so nationally. And uh, some recent actions by District Attorney of, of Fulton County, Fannie Willis, indicate that charges are coming very close for Trump, um, likely this summer. Take a look at this from CNN, and then we'll discuss. The Georgia prosecutor leading an investigation into former President Trump and his allies is now signaling a new timeline, possible timetable for charges. In a letter obtained by CNN, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis announced remote work days for most of her staff during the first three weeks of August. She asked judges to refrain from in-person hearings for parts of that month as well. This might suggest that Willis expects the grand jury to unseal indictments during that time period. And then quickly from the New York Times, uh, also reporting on this before we dive into it, Josiah, um, if you could get that thrown up real quick, Georgia prosecutor signals August timetable for charges in Trump inquiry. Um, the Georgia prosecutor leading an investigation into former President Donald J. Trump and his allies has taken the unusual step of announcing remote work days for most of her staff during the first three weeks of August, asking uh, judges in a downtown Atlanta courthouse not to schedule trials uh, for part of that time as she prepares to bring charges in the inquiry. And one part that we talked about on the show in the past, I don't think you and me, but I did, Josiah, and you can yeah, take that down. Um, is I think even more significant the fact that she sent a letter to or communicated in some fashion, I think it was a letter to law enforcement agencies asking them to be prepared, have enhanced security um, in that same time period. And why would you need enhanced security unless you're charging someone like Trump? 
Yeah, no, I mean, at this point, especially after January 6th and everything else, it's probably very prudent to have serious security concerns. She's certainly signaling and has been for some time that she is leaning towards indictment. It's entirely possible that it may not happen, but all the cues over the past several months have indicated as such. Um, This is one of the big ones, Um, much more so than the, you know, the 34 Alvin Bragg uh, indictments. Um, This is up there with... Uh, Special Prosecutor Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's involvement with January 6th and the classified documents, uh, those two cases. And as a matter of fact, even though I think January 6th takes precedent in terms of how high profile it is and its most overt, vicious attempt to overthrow democracy, I think this is the Fulton County case is I think you'd easily make an argument that it's more important than the classified documents case. So that's that's pretty severe in terms of uh, what this could potentially mean for Trump if it goes the wrong way for him and for the country if it goes uh, in a way that's uh, to Trump's favor. Yeah. One of the things I've uh, repeated multiple times on the show is while 100 percent any of Trump's violations of the law, he needs to be held accountable for absolutely law and order. Um, as Republicans used to say. <laughs> um, but you're going to, of course, compare the cases when someone is being investigated for all these different things like Trump is. And so when doing that comparison, it is absolutely accurate to say some are more important in both the accountability that's necessary and the impact that accountability will have uh, moving forward. So this case and the federal case um, also investigating the attempts to overturn the election so important, top of the list, most important to hold uh, Trump accountable for, for, and for in this moment, us to see justice, but also whenever this is being looked back upon um, as history for justice to have been um, present, because as long as this MAGA ideology or future ideology, this anti-democratic like this one, as long as something like that exists, we could see something like Trump's attempts to install himself president for four more years, um, despite the fact that he lost to Biden, happen again. Now, that will be less likely if whoever has that idea, whoever has that ambition in the future, sees historically what happened to Trump whenever he tried that. He was held accountable. And that's why it's so crucial that while, yes, if it can be proven that uh, Trump broke the law when it comes to the Stormy Daniels stuff, accountability, yes, the documents, accountability, all of that. But the democracy piece of it, the accountability for his attempts to overturn um, a lawful, free and fair election, that is so, so crucial. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, because as a reminder, this is in reference, this particular case out of Fulton County is in reference to the 2020 phone call that Donald Trump made as he was the sitting president to uh, Georgia election officials. I think it was uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and I think maybe even Georgia Governor uh, Brian Kemp. Where he's like, guys, all I need is just 11,780 votes. I mean, come on, just find me the votes. You know what I'm saying? It's just it's one more than what we need. A very naked, transparent attempt. To, hey, guys, just find, just manufacture, create, locate the one more vote than what Joe Biden has in, in order for me to win uh, Georgia. That's a very transparent attempt to overturn the results of a free and fair election. That in January 6th are paramount, much more important than, again, the Alvin Bragg indictments. So, again, if he's guilty, as you say, he should be held accountable. But we need to be focusing on uh, what happens here in, in Fulton County and what happens with Jack Smith. I'll also say, um, because, again, unfortunately, the American public, and I would argue probably even the global public at this point, it's probably not exclusive to just the United States, we have very short-term memories in terms of politics. And so things that horrify us in the moment, you give us enough time and, and enough day-to-day stresses and commitments and complications, some of it's understandable. We tend to forget the importance of other things. So a lot of people downplay who once criticized Donald Trump over January 6th and the Georgia phone call are now trying to sweep it under. That's not a big deal. It didn't work. He's being investigated, blah, blah, blah. What Donald Trump did was shatter the single most important civic tradition that we had in this country. I'll repeat that again. The single most important civic tradition in this country, the peaceful transfer of power. That was established by President Washington before he was president. At the end of the Revolutionary War, George Washington was the supreme commander of the only military force in the colonies. He could have easily 
declared himself George the First after overthrowing George the Third, and most of his officers revered him and worshipped him. But instead, he he embodied the principle of Cincinnatus and gave absolute power back to the civilian Continental Congress. That was unheard of. That impressed Napoleon. It impressed King George. It impressed everybody because this is not how people work. Then he did it again at the end of his second term. There was no constitutional amendment which mandated that President Washington retire after two terms. And then all through the, the ages from you know President Adams all the way to President Obama, that tradition, no matter if you were Federalist, Anti-Federalist, Whig, whatever non-Whigs were at the time, I can't remember what the party was, Democrat or Republican, that is exactly what they did until Donald Trump. The peaceful transfer of executive power is the single most important civic tradition ever. And I know some people say, well, I mean, even Democrats have questioned elections. No, 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 not like this. They exercised certain legal prerogatives, which they had the right to do, but no. Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, none of them tried to legislate or litigate their way into a second term. None of them encouraged a coup, nothing like that. Orders of magnitude apart. It is vital that Donald Trump not only fail in his attempt to overthrow the United States, that he be punished ruthlessly for it by the justice system. That's why this matters. It's not enough to say, well, he failed. Let's just move on. No, no, no. There's no limiting principle there. You not only have to cause him to fail you have to punish him severely for it. So, sorry for that rant. I just feel very strongly about it. And that's why we need to follow this Fulton County case and what's coming out of Jack Smith's office. Agreed. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. Josiah, hit him with your, uh, what do they call them, your tags? My tags, my shout outs, mm. I think. I don't know. Yeah. You can come up with a better Plug. term. But you can find me, Josiah, at pondering politics that's youtube.com slash at because that's i missed that the last time mm -hmm. at pondering politics one word i would appreciate a like and subscribe uh comment feedback i love to discuss things with people if you disagree with some of my takes leave me a comment you know probably get engagement there too but luke i appreciate the invitation and i appreciate the platform can't wait to do this again absolutely love doing it with you i will see you all on Monday or the bonus show if you remember, um, but everyone else on Monday.